On this week's edition of New York Now, the remains of Hurricane Ida rock downstate New York, and Governor Hochul calls for action. And I don't want this to happen again. And lawmakers make a special trip to Albany to act on evictions and more. Keisha Kluke from Bloomberg and Ryan Taranelli from the New York Law Journal join us for this week's panel. Then, Tuesday was Overdose Awareness Day. We'll speak with Senate Alcoholism and Substance Use Chair Pete Harcum about the state's opioid addiction crisis. And later, presumptive Republican nominee for governor, Lee Zeldin, is crisscrossing the state again. Daryl Camp has more. I'm Dan Clark, and this is New York Now. Today, the Senate majority will pass legislation. I will fight like hell for you every single day, like I've always done and always will. Welcome to this week's edition of New York Now. I'm Dan Clark. New York is no stranger to extreme weather events. You might remember seven years ago when Buffalo was covered with seven feet of snow and we just passed the 10-year mark of Irene and Lee, which ravaged Long Island and parts of upstate as well. So when remnants of Hurricane Ida were headed toward New York this week, it felt like another storm that we could handle, but it turns out we could not. After an unprecedented amount of rainfall in a short period of time, Flooding overwhelmed homes, city streets, and the subways, which didn't stand a chance. And that's brought up a lot of questions, like, why wasn't the city prepared for this kind of flooding? The answer is, we just don't know. The city has taken steps in the past to address situations like these, but year after year, we still see videos of flooding in the subways and in the streets of New York City. But Governor Kathy Hochul said this week, it's time for that to stop. What I wanted to do first was assess where we are today, but my next question is, where are we going next? How do we prevent this from happening? How do we get money to the, and resources to the places we can build up the resiliency in streets? Before we worried about the coastal areas, now it's about what's happening in the streets. And Hochul said she'll also be releasing reports on how to make that happen, so we'll see what they say. More about the state storm response in just a bit. But first, the state legislature made a special trip back to Albany this week to extend a pause on evictions, also known as the eviction moratorium. And like anything in Albany, it's not as simple as it sounds. Take a look. Until late Tuesday, tenants and landlords in New York were in limbo. The state's eviction moratorium was set to expire at midnight, leaving thousands of tenants at risk of eviction. But about six hours before that deadline, Governor Kathy Hochul said that wouldn't happen. We are not going to allow people to, who know fault to their own, lost income, not able to pay, and facing eviction. We are not going to allow that to happen here in the great state of New York. The next day, lawmakers returned to Albany to extend the pause on evictions. That's now in effect until January 15th of next year. It doesn't cover all tenants, just those who can show they can't afford rent because of the pandemic. Many of them lost jobs, lost the ability to make their bills, and now the debt has been mounting. And the fact is that we are not out of the pandemic yet, as much as we had hoped. But the terms will now be different. Before Tuesday, landlords weren't allowed to question their tenants' claims of financial hardship. Then, the U.S. Supreme Court said that part of the law was illegal. Now, landlords can challenge their tenants in court before they're protected from eviction.
Senator Kevin Thomas is a Democrat from Long Island. And we have, in this new version, uh, put in uh, you know, some provisions that basically say, hey, uh, now the landlord gets to have a hearing. I think that goes a long way, and uh, the landlord has uh, a say in court now. Landlords will also be allowed to evict tenants over intentional property damage or causing a nuisance, regardless of financial hardship. In the meantime, more tenants can now apply to the state for rent relief. Tenants in localities that opted out of the state program will now be eligible as well. That pays up to 12 months of back rent, with the potential for another three months. That funding goes straight to a tenant's landlord. And if they're approved, tenants are also safe from eviction for up to a year. Senate Housing Chair Brian Kavanaugh. What we're doing today is not preventing people from collecting rent. The rent is becoming due. And again, we are working very hard to ensure that we have programs that are adequate to pay that rent so that landlords uh, have, their, have their expenses covered. But landlords say that's not enough. The eviction moratorium has been in place for a year and a half, and landlords say that's been a huge hit. And now that there's rent relief, they say it's time for the moratorium to end. Lisa Damiani leads a coalition of property owners in western New York. Every step along the way, the landlords have been asked to just wait. Just wait until, wait until, um, you know, the CARES Act money comes through. Wait until we get the program open. Uh, now we're waiting until, you know, it, it's just, they're the only group that has been waiting perennially and, and nothing has come through. Republicans in the legislature took the side of landlords, saying the moratorium should end. Instead of extending the safety net for tenants, they said the state should speed up payouts of rent relief, which have lagged for months. Senate Republican leader Rob Ort. And my argument is if we're trying to solve the crisis, we have the tools to do it. We have a program with over a billion dollars that we can get out the door into people's hands still. And today we're doing nothing to solve that actual issue. And that is a real shame for both tenants and property owners. The extension was approved largely along party lines, with Democrats in favor and Republicans opposed. Lawmakers also passed changes to the state's open meetings law, allowing virtual public meetings to continue at the local level until January. And the Senate confirmed two nominees from Governor Hochul to lead the state's marijuana legalization rollout. Those were former Assemblymember Tremaine Wright and Chris Alexander, an advocate who worked in the cannabis industry. Those nominees are a few months late, which may push retail cannabis sales further down the road in New York. Melissa Moore is from the Drug Policy Alliance, which supports legalization. But I think they, you know, they were also really clear about moving in such a way where they would be, you know, working in partnership and in collaboration with the legislature and with the executive and that everybody has the goal of being able to move swiftly and be able to get the program enacted as quickly as possible, but also doing so in a way that is, you know, again, going to really hew true to the values and the principles that were in the bill to begin with. Retail sales are expected sometime later next year, unless the legislature gives the industry a boost. That's not expected until January at the earliest, when lawmakers return to Albany for the start of next year's session. So it was a long week. Let's get into it with this week's panel. Keisha Kluke is from Bloomberg Law. Ryan Tarinelli is from the New York Law Journal. Thank you both for being here. Thanks for having us. I want to talk about the storm first because I feel like as of Friday morning when we're taping, that's still the big story. There's a lot to recover. Lives have been lost. Uh, some have been critical of the Hochul administration 
and the de Blasio administration of their response to the storm. Ryan, what do we know that happened here in terms of uh, the flooding, the deaths? New York City has seen higher rainfall events before, but this seemed like one that stood out. Yeah, it kind of, uh, you know, from a lot of the reporting really took everything, everybody by surprise. Um, you know, we're talking uh, across multiple states, dozens of deaths. Um, many in New York City were lost uh, in basement units. And I really think you're going to start to see a lot of focus on how the government regulates those. It certainly sparked uh, more debate and discussion around that. Uh, you know, how the government is looking at those units, regulating them and whatnot. I think you're also going to see a lot more debate about how uh, the city prepares for these flash flood flooding events going forward uh, with the specter of climate change. Uh, and so I think that those are the main discussions here. But, you know, to point, your point, you know, you had these really tragic videos, these really dramatic videos slingshotting across social media of just floods, roads flooded, uh, storm, uh, storm floods rushing into subway corridors. So I think that those images really, I think, shock the nation, mm -hmm. um, but also is are really highlighting this issue for lawmakers. I don't want to be graphic about this, but the basement apartments issue is a real thing because I've lived in a basement apartment before and I could not imagine being in one as it flooded. But another point about it is, as this rainwater gets higher and higher, it's almost like you're trapped in a car underwater where your door and your windows are sealed shut at that point. It's not as easy as the water's up to here and you just walk to your door and walk out to safety. And also, you have to recognize that if you did get to your door and you open it up, you'd be immediately submerged by a wave of water. So it's terrible. I hope that they become safer in some way, shape, or form. Keisha, just on the storm for a second, um, some have said that it did take the administration by surprise. Do you think that this is more of a learning curve for Kathy Hochul? Because she just took office last week, and as we know, she wasn't really close with Governor Andrew Cuomo when he was in office, so she wasn't really too involved in that storm response. Not that she doesn't have experience with it. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think, like you said, she just took office last week. She's got a lot of balls in the air right now. Um, and she did mention, you know, this is these sort of 500-year storms are no longer 500 years. So I think she recognized that the state needs to do more to prepare and not only prepare for water rising up, but water coming down and in, mm -hmm. um, which is not something they were more concerned with the subways before. And I think the basement issue wasn't thought about for some reason. Um, and I think she's also kind of juxtaposed to her predecessor who, you know, was the act, governor act of action, uh, Andrew Cuomo, who, yeah. you know, had his windbreaker on and was out, you know, digging people out of the snow and doing whatever. So I think she kind of has that, that she has to overcome. And I think we haven't seen, she's been talking to a lot of federal officials, which is great, but I think we're going to have to see some more action from her moving forward. Yeah, I think so too. And especially in situations like these, you wonder how the administration is going to respond in the long term. They said that the, the storm drainage systems were blocked. And I, from my perspective, I don't know how you have a storm coming in that could cause significant damage. And as the city administration, how do you not check those storm drains and make sure that things are going to drain correctly? Mm -hmm. Maybe that's not their fault. I have no idea. I'm not there on the ground. And, and the real question too becomes, you know, for state politicians, is this still going to be on the minds when, when everybody comes back into session in January, presumably, you know, right. is this going to be something that uh, still extends to that? Is that going to be on people's minds or 
people are still going to be talking about um, what happened with this storm, which is going to be interesting to see. Speaking of session, we had a special or extraordinary session this week. <laughs> Lawmakers made a fun trip back to Albany for um, one day. It feels like <laughs> it lasted about five. <laughs> Um, Keisha, I want to go to you. So they passed this extension of the eviction moratorium. We went over the details a little bit earlier in the show, but how are people reacting to this? How is this going to change people's lives? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that tenants kind of breathed a sigh of relief and tenant advocate groups were just over the moon that they came back and did this. They were a little dismayed by the timing because the state's um, moratorium had actually expired on the 31st, which was Tuesday. So it kind of left this time period of limbo and so, and also the transparency of the bill because no one got to see the bill. Mm. It came out, lawmakers were supposed to come in at noon. The bill came out at two and then they were expected to vote on it. So I think there was a little bit of hesitancy there. I want to um, point out just really yes. quick, this was not a surprise, by the way. Yes. The eviction, they extended this deadline until August 31st. They extended it in March, I believe, or April, one of the two. So it's not like we didn't know that this mm -hmm. was coming. And with the numbers rising, I have to wonder why they didn't think about this a little mm -hmm. bit earlier, but Well, ahead. and Sorry. I think one of the issues for that is that the U.S. Supreme Court um, knocked down the federal moratorium, which right. would have helped some right. New Yorkers through October. So I think lawmakers were thinking they had more time. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, wait, we don't have that protection. I think it's also important to show or to say that the uh, Landlord Association has already said next week they're suing. Mm. They're not happy with this at and all. I'm surprised. Go ahead, Ryan. And, and, and to the point, uh, too, is that while they did, it's kind of fascinating, too, because while they did lengthen the anti-eviction protections, right, they also, in some areas, uh, loosened those protections for tenants. Yeah. Um, you know, Keisha, to your point, there was a Supreme Court ruling that basically said, hey, you have to give landlords the ability to challenge a self-declaration of hardship in court. Uh, so the, the, the legislature then addressed that. Uh, then uh, the legislature also basically are allowing landlords to go forward with eviction protections uh, or, excuse me, to go forward with an eviction when a tenant is either found to be a nuisance to the property or is causing significant damage. And so it's going to be interesting to see how the court systems react to that. Is that become a major thing? Do more tenants start to be evicted because of that? It's kind of a wait and see mm -hmm. at this point, but it's interesting that at one point they lengthened it, but also in certain areas there are less protections. And I do want to point out that the loopholes that you talked about, the property damage and the uh, nuisance thing, that doesn't matter with financial hardship. So even if you have a financial hardship, your landlord can still start eviction proceedings on those two bases, just for people that know. Um, Keisha, another thing that happened was we had the first two appointments to uh, start the state's marijuana legalization rollout. We had uh, Assemblymember Tremaine Wright, who's going to head the Cannabis Control Board, and Chris Alexander, who's going to be the Executive Director of the Office of Cannabis Management. So what's going on there? Um, do we see retail sales starting later? How are people reacting to this? Mm -hmm. So I think people were really excited because uh, the appointments were kind of delayed. Uh, Governor Cuomo signed the bill in March of uh, this year, and uh, the appointments had still not been made. And the big thing with these is that these two appointments needed to be confirmed by the Senate and session ended in June. So if they weren't coming back, these appointments couldn't have been confirmed before January, which kind of would have, um, when you're thinking about the growing season of this, mm. you're talking about needing to get it started in spring and the regulations still need to be made. Licenses need to be distributed. So there's a lot to this. And I think 
a lot of the business organizations and especially the social equity um, aspect, trying to make sure that you know the the little man gets his chance to to open this up and um, communities that were hard hit by the drug war um, have the chance to have businesses. Those are all things that need to come into play. So when I was talking to um, business groups, they were overjoyed that these appointments were made. There's a few more that still need to be made. The legislature, uh, the assembly and the Senate both have one pick and uh, Kathy Hochul has two more that don't need to be confirmed and then they can start making these regulations and then we're hearing the growing or the um, sales could start in as late as uh, summer, the end of summer next year. It's going to be interesting to watch, but we do have to leave it there. Ryan Tarinelli from the New York Law Journal, Keisha Kluke from Bloomberg. Thank you both so much as always. Thanks for having Thanks. me. Moving on now, Tuesday was International Overdose Awareness Day. As we've told you, New York's opioid addiction crisis grew during the pandemic last year after a few years of progress. According to state data, there was a 22% increase in opioid overdoses last year compared to 2019. And that has some calling for more action from the state. Protesters gathered outside Governor Hochul's office this week to push for overdose prevention centers. Those are places where people could use drugs under medical supervision without being arrested. When Perry Asami is from Housing Works, a group that supports those centers. Throughout the pandemic, um, more folks have uh, died from preventable overdose, and this is a solution that has been shown both from evidence as well as from the sites around the world, that this is a solution that can really help save lives. And, we, we are asking not one more. Those centers are just one idea that lawmakers say could curb the state's opioid and heroin crisis. New York is expecting a windfall of more than a billion dollars from settlements with major opioid companies. And there's a lot that can be done with that money. For more on that, I turn to State Senator Pete Harkham, who chairs the Alcoholism and Substance Use Committee. Senator Pete Harkham, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Anytime. So we did see overdoses from opioids increase in 2020 compared to 2019. It's obviously not a good situation. It's not a place that we want to be in for a state that was really making some progress on those overdoses. Do you know anecdotally why we're seeing that spike in overdose deaths in New York? I know that you've spoken to stakeholders both in the community and obviously from state agencies. Sure. And this is also a national trend. It's not just in New York. Um, but isolation is really uh, devastating to people um, with substance use disorder. Uh, the financial despair, the stress, uh, the isolation, the loneliness um, are all triggers for people with substance use disorder and other behavioral health issues where they begin to self-medicate. So on the other side of that is the response. We are getting at least $500 million from some settlements in some opioid lawsuits, including from Johnson & Johnson and Purdue Pharma. Can you lay out how that money can be used? It's obviously a very big amount and it can make a really big dent, but how could we see that money dispersed to really help the opioid crisis? Well, first we want to acknowledge the terrific work of the Attorney General Letitia James for, for leading the nation in these settlements. And this money will go into a lockbox that the legislature passed and the governor signed to only be used for substance use disorder, pre prevention, treatment, recovery, and harm reduction. So first we need to start with evidence-based treatment and that starts with the people. We have been underpaying the people in this field. So it's incredibly challenging for them 
to to recruit and retain good people. You can have vacant beds, but if you don't have people to staff the beds, that's a big problem. The other is medication-assisted treatment. We have a waiver of prior authorization for medication-assisted treatment on the private insurance side. We don't have it on the Medicaid side. We have to have that because doctors spend four or five hours on the phone trying to get authorization. That's when we lose people. That's a dangerous time. Another thing that we can be doing is putting uh, money towards treatment on demand in the correctional uh, system and medication-assisted treatment. The overdose death rate for people coming out of our correctional facilities is, is far higher than the average population. And the reason is they still have the disease of addiction and they've lost their tolerance and they come out and they use and unfortunately they perish at a very high rate. So we need to look out for that population. Another thing we can do is also um, on these, these um, crisis intervention centers. The governor proposed 10 in the budget, but there weren't funding uh, allocations for them. These are crucial. Anyone with behavioral health issues, substance use disorder issues can go 24 hours a day. Um, it saves on emergency rooms. It saves on the correctional system. Uh, people can be linked with treatment right away, but we've got to fund those centers. And then on the harm reduction side, things like um, uh, needle exchange, uh, A, keep people alive, and B, give them a window to get into treatment, as well as more uh, naloxone trainings and getting naloxone or Narcan out into the population. It almost feels like at this point in the opioid epidemic that we're almost past, like, I, I feel like in the start of it, people were really relying on Narcan as a way to prevent these overdoses. And now we're looking more at the treatment side of it and the prevention and how to get people to curb their addiction. And one of the, idea, one of the ideas to, to do that is these things called overdose prevention centers. They're very controversial. We've seen them in other states. They're basically places that people could go to use drugs under the supervision of medical staff so that they don't overdose. And then they, they can be referred to treatment and services. What do you think about those? And do you think that those will be necessary to really curb the opioid epidemic in New York? Well, the, I, I think they're vital to keep people alive. And that's the first goal. Not everybody is ready for treatment. So the goal needs to be to keep those folks alive. And I went up uh, with a few other senators and visited a supervised consumption site in Toronto. All throughout Canada, there have been no fatalities. Um, and it, it's crucial that we try and keep folks alive. So at these centers, there's also the opportunity because they're in community health centers where uh, have you had a hepatitis test? Have you had a physical exam? You know, what do you think about treatment? Do you think it might be ready? So these are a way to get people into the healthcare system and then when they're ready to get them into treatment. And at the same time, they keep people alive. Uh, I, I think they're very necessary. Um, you know, some of the critics will say they encourage use. No, they don't encourage use. What they do is people who are using already um, are allowed to use safely in a supervised manner with medical professionals. Um, and you're not going to see people dying in the restrooms of McDonald's and our coffee shops. So do we know why members of the legislature may not be on board with this? I assume that you've talked to your colleagues about the idea. I know the Senate health chair is supportive of it, and I don't know where they land in the assembly, but what have you heard from your colleagues on this? Well, I think some people are worried about some of the stigma uh, that their constituents may feel. And, you know, around this entire field, 
we need to break down stigma. This is a public health issue. This is not a moral issue. This is not a criminal issue. This is a public health issue, and we need to treat it as such. All right, well, we'll leave it there. This is obviously a problem that's not going away anytime soon, but hopefully we can see more progress made as we go on. But Senate uh, Alcoholism and Substance Use Chair Pete Harcum, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And if you or anyone you know is living with an addiction, there are resources available. We'll put some up on our website. That's at nynow.org. In the meantime, a little politics. Congressman Lee Zeldin, the Republican presumptive nominee for governor, crisscrossed the state again this week. Daryl Camp caught up with him in Albany, and he's here with more. Daryl. Thanks, Dan. So as we approach the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks, the world is watching Afghanistan, where 13 service members died last month as U.S. troops were leaving the country. That exit was a part of the Biden administration's strategy to end two decades of ongoing military conflict. Congressman Lee Zeldin, the presumptive Republican nominee for governor, is an Army reservist who was deployed to Iraq in 2006. He was in Albany this week where he shared his thoughts on how the United States left the longest conflict in our recent history. He says things should have been done differently. You don't empty out the prison that's there where there, at, at that point where there's hardened uh, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, Taliban fighters who are um, re-entering mili what is a military conflict we saw with the loss of life and the suicide bomber while you still have this mission to evacuate. Zeldin also says there's some uncertainty about how successful our post 9-11 military operations have been. If you define victory as taking out Osama bin Laden, fighting the enemy over there as opposed to over here, you are uh, dismantling the command and control nodes and gaining intelligence and other uh, in intelligence advantages of operating. If you define victory based off of success in that mission, then you're able to say we achieved our objectives and now we can go. Ultimately, Zeldin says the upcoming 20-year anniversary will be a time for deep reflection. All right, thank you so much, Daryl. And join us next week for a special edition of New York Now, reflecting on 9-11. We'll speak with former Governor George Pataki, journalists who covered the attacks, and more. We'll see you then. Thanks for watching this week's New York Now. Have a great week and be well.